0: This is The Guardian.
1: This week we're going back to some of our favourite episodes of the year so far. We're starting with a special investigation. The Division, New Orleans. Today, episode two of four. If you haven't listened to episode one, I recommend going back and listening to that first. And do stay with us until the final episode for an update on what's happened since the podcast first aired back in May. A quick warning, this series features strong language and depicts scenes of violence. Previously on The Division, New Orleans. It's 2020, New Orleans. The incarceration capital of the world. The city elects a progressive black district attorney, Jason Williams. He promises to change the system from within.
0: We must reckon
1: with our past. A quarter of a century earlier, Quante Reader says he's playing basketball.
2: While we were playing, some guys came over and said, Man, somebody just got shot.
1: Mark, His childhood friend has been killed outside a food store. There are two suspects. A guy called Bird, who is apparently furious with Mark for dating his ex. And then Kwante, who the cops decide did it.
2: He took the book and slapped me across my head with it. And knocked me out of the chair. And
3: And every time they were asking you, did you kill him?
2: Yeah. And every time I told them no. And they say what I'm worried about. We'll get you.
1: They charge Quante with Mark's murder. And he's prosecuted by the notoriously aggressive old DA, Harry Connick.
0: Seemingly their mantra was, we are going to convict, we are going to do it to the fullest extent of the law possible, and we're going to do it even when we know on some way of knowing that this person that we are prosecuting maybe didn't even do it.
1: There's no physical evidence. And only one testifying eyewitness whose story seems shaky.
2: I'm looking at the jury and I'm looking like, I know y'all don't believe what you're listening to.
1: But after the first jury can't agree, a second jury convicts him in a non unanimous decision. And Kuwante is sent to Angola, one of America's most notorious prisons.
2: That's like the worst ride you're ever gonna take. That's for sure. Knowing you're going to one of the bloodiest prisons in America, and the thought process is, how you gonna deal with it? How you gonna survive? Angola is its own city, its own town, its own county, its own parish. It's 18,000 acres. It's, 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 we could be in that prison together for 30 years and I could never see you. I could never know you were there because it's that far and that wide. All the different camps, they're that far apart.
3: In 1995, Quante Rida was sent to spend the rest of his life at Angola Prison in the Deep South. As you drive through this part of Louisiana, you pass huge oak trees, with Spanish moss hanging from the branches. Old plantation houses sit back from the road. The land is fertile and green, a product of the Mississippi River and the relentless humidity. And then you come to the largest maximum security prison in America. A notorious place.
4: There's one building which you know houses the chapel. The There's the infirmary and hospice program. Areas of that can be eerily still.
3: Professor Andrea Armstrong has been going to Angola for years, documenting its history and talking to prisoners about their lives there. She talks about the sound of the place, how it varies from location to location.
4: There are other buildings, for example, where they have disciplinary segregation, solitary confinement that are a constant cacophony of sounds. Alarms going off, it is, you know, these heavy metal bars rattling back and forth as they open because it's a really old facility. Sound carries in a lot of these places and so you can You know, hear that there are multiple conversations happening at any given time. You know, somebody drops something, you know, down the tier, it reverberates all the way through the tier.
3: History reverberates through this place too.
4: You, you have to drive through the gates and then drive to different buildings. And I remember I'm driving down this beautiful road. There's overarching trees. Um, it's incredibly hot in the summer and it, it seems bucolic. It seems like a beautiful, peaceful place to be. And then I look over to the left and, and there's a man, uh, a white man on horseback with a rifle and, you know, dressed in an in officer's uniform, and he's just looking over, and there are rows of black backs just bent over the fields. I mean, I felt like I had entered another century.
2: That work in Angola is unbelievable. It takes... I can't even describe it. It would take for you to be there to see it. Because no man, no animal, for real, no man or animal should have to work like that.
3: What do they make you do?
2: They will give you a a hoe, you know, a hoe, a gardening tool, a hoe, with no sharpening on it. They will give you a dull hole and they will tell you, they will take you on a levee. Now be mindful, a levee is high and wide. They will take you on a levee until you start from the top of the levee, scraping the grass down. Then once you scrape all that grass down, you got to pull it back up over the levee and dump it in the lake.
3: How long does that take?
2: five or six hours. You got guards on horseback looking down on you. With telling guns? You, yeah, with guns, telling you, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. You gotta do this, you gotta do that. Don't stop. If I see any grass in my cut, I'ma lock you up. It puts you in the dungeon. Again, the hole in isolation by yourself. You go in there for 10 days, you come out and you go back to that line.
3: And how long were you made to do that sort of work?
2: About 11 years.
3: 11 years? Yep.
2: About 11 years. Just all labor in the field. Modern day slavery.
4: When I talked to people who were actually in the fields, they talked about um, they're doing this slave labor Right. Labor that their ancestors actually were forced to do. And so from that first visit, I started looking at the history of Angola. um, And all of that makes sense when you understand where it came from.
3: Angola prison used to be the Angola plantation named after the country in southern Africa.
4: The lore of the place is that it was named as Angola because that's where the best slaves came from.
3: After the Civil War, the plantation became a prison and its population began to grow because of a new swathe of racist laws designed deliberately to criminalize Black Americans. Men who had just been freed from slavery and their descendants were incarcerated right back on some of the same plantations forced to do the same work. And it was all possible because of the wording of the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution.
4: The U.S. Constitution uh, has the 13th Amendment, and this was passed uh, relatively soon after the uh, end of the Civil War. And it prohibits slavery and involuntary servitude but has a unique exception, which says unless convicted, duly convicted of a crime. So what that means is that at a minimum, people who have been convicted can um, be forced to serve involuntarily. And it became a business. Um, So traditional plantation crops, cotton, soybeans, sugar cane, Um, as well as a variety of industrial programs, um, all of which were either designed to save the state money or produce a profit. But it's not just about profit. There's something
3: deeper going on here.
4: So, for example, um, planting cotton has consistently lost the state money as long as I've been looking at it. Uh, It has never individually turned a profit, And so it raises questions on, okay, well, why, why are we so attached to this particular crop? What do you think the purpose is then? I think there's a lot of different motivations. I think in talking to correctional officials, they don't necessarily see the dignitary harm. They don't, they're like, well, it's, you know, there's lots of people around the world who, you know, who farm, not everybody is a slave. And so I don't see what the big deal is. For those who do see it, they say, well, they committed a crime. They deserve it. And I, I think my response usually to them is "But they didn't negate their own humanity, right? They are still fundamentally people. And so when we think about the types of punishments that might be appropriate for violating the, the rules and the laws that you know structure us as a society, none of them are intended or, or should be intended to erase a person's human being, the essence of what it means to be, to be born human.
3: Over the years, Angola has tried to expand the programs it offers prisoners. There are educational programs, opportunities to get professional qualifications, learn new skills, rehabilitate. Though for many, it's not rehabilitation for a life outside. Louisiana sentences people to life without parole at a higher rate than any other state in America. And Quante is one of those people. But even knowing that didn't stop him trying to find a purpose to his days. Eventually, he was allowed to stop working in the fields and got a place on beautification. A gardening
2: course you cut grass, you plant the flowers. Beautification was more of a trade than actual slave job because you learn what plants were for what what a uh, year. Uh, the annuals, perennials, and things.
3: What were your favorite plants to do?
2: Oh, uh, pansies. 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 Yeah, they do some little they real they got like uh yellow, red, pink, uh orange. Them the ones I really like. Really, I found peace in that job. Peace in nature and doing things in nature, you know. It helped you deal with the everyday rigors of prison. When you can get away from all the stuff that's going on and for a little while, you know you got to go back into it. But the little while that you do get away from it, it helps you clear yourself up. It helps you clean yourself up. You know, you got to take a little bit at a time. Take out a little bit at a time, a piece of piece there. And before you know it, you've cleansed yourself.
3: Quante always insisted he was innocent, and he never stopped trying to have his conviction overturned. But the ripple effects of incarceration go far beyond the prison gates. Just talk to me about what it's like trying to keep your family together when you're in prison.
2: Wow. Let me say this first I love Vanessa. I do. And I always have. I loved her before she knew I loved her. And when I got the opportunity to say my piece, she took me on. And it's it, it, been, it been great ever since. And me going into prison, it was hard for her. And I had to tell her to, you're young. So I'm going to let you go. I don't want to, but I'm going to step back and let you see what you like, what you want your life to be without me. Or can you move forward without me? Hopefully you can, because I don't want you to be stuck to this, because this is incarceration. And if you stuck to me, you're incarcerated. You're incarcerating a part of yourself, and I don't want you to do that. So she left for, you know, not long, a few years, but then she came back. And she said, man, this ain't right. She said, so I'm back and I'm here to stay. Whatever the consequence is, I'm back and I'm here to stay. So when I say I love Vanessa, I love Vanessa.
3: How did did you feel when she
2: told you that? Oh, man, that was like, That was like, wow, thank you. You know, just to know that you have somebody love you that much that they're willing to stay by your side through something like this, you can never shun that. You can never push that aside. You can never wash that off. It's on you. Mm. That's a piece that was put back. That's a piece that they took from you that you actually got back. Mm. That's like one of the most latent feelings in the world. How often did she come to visit you when you were in She Angola? came to visit me. From the time she came back, she came to visit me every month. And sometimes it was four times a month. Oh. You know, we just sit down and we talk about it. And we try to coach each other up. And uh, sometimes she'd get weary and, you know, she'd just be crying. She said, it's hard for me, you know, I can't really deal with it, but I'm doing my best. You know, and it, it took me to coach her up sometime. And sometimes she had to coach me up. Cause sometimes I'd be, you know, just wake up and, wow, am I ever gonna get out of this situation? And she would be right there. Man, you gonna get out of the situation. She never gave up on me. She never disbelieved.
3: Over the years at Angola, Quante and his lawyers made several public records requests to the DA's office, asking them to turn over what they had on him. But he never got much back. A few hundred pages, a fraction of the file. He had appealed many times over the years. The district attorney always fought back. And Quante always lost. By 2020, he'd exhausted almost every legal avenue available to him. But 2020 was also the year that, to many people, became an era defining moment in the history of race in America. A swell of protests took over the nation and then spread around the world in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis.
0: And this
3: also happened to be the year that New Orleans was set to elect a new district attorney
1: Orleans Parish District Attorney Leon Canizero cleared the way for a new top prosecutor in the city. He announced he will not seek re-election this afternoon, setting the stage for what is sure to be a notable race.
3: As the campaign ran on, Quante and some of the other guys in Angola who insisted they were innocent, they started watching more closely. And one name in particular was catching their attention.
4: City Councilman at large, Jason Williams. City Council President, President, President,
5: President, Jason President Jason Williams. We got a special guest on the line. Brother by the name of Jason Williams. Morning, brother.
0: Morning. It's good to be with you. How y'all feeling?
2: Blessed, black, and highly favored, Mr. Williams. For for, for those that right don't on. know who Jason Williams is, let them know who Jason Williams is and what Jason Williams is doing.
0: I am uh, currently president of the New Orleans City Council, and I'm running for district attorney of Orleans Parish, New Orleans, to the rest of the world. And I'm running because our system isn't broken It is working just as it was designed, to prosecute and over-police one group and to protect and serve another. And it's time to upend that and to finally bring some fairness to the criminal legal system
2: in New Orleans. It was understood that he was going to be the one to help us. We just needed to get him in. So we ratted up everybody in the prison Look man, we need to get your families to go vote for Jason.
3: Wow, so people in Angola were saying, this guy needs to win.
2: Yeah, this guy needs to win. And uh, when he wins, he's gonna be the one to open some doors for us. So we need to get our families out and get them to vote.
1: Welcome back, we're gonna take you back to the Orleans Parish District Attorney's race. Jennifer Crockett has been following the Jason Williams camp. Keeva Landrum just conceded a few minutes ago. Jen, what's the latest there? People here tonight are getting excited. We are
4: awaiting Jason Williams now. I'm told he's going to be here within the next five to 10 minutes and you can hear the crowd is happy about that. They are excited to hear
0: from their newest district attorney, Jason Williams. Tonight, you folks have bestowed upon me an incredible honor, one that I will not now or ever take for granted to serve you as your next DA. Now that we've won this race though, now that we've won this race, I need to recommit myself and I beg of you to recommit yourself. Because in a sense, the fight to undo 300 years of backwards thinking, 300 years of policing and prosecuting certain neighborhoods and protecting and serving others, This fight has just begun!
3: Coming up, I go to meet Jason Williams. bro. Nice yeah, to meet yeah. you, you too. Right. Thank you. Bye, bye, bye. Bye. bye bye. Oh, sorry. New Orleans is a city known for French colonial architecture. Bright, beautiful colours, houses on stilts. But standing at Tulane and Broad, where the criminal justice buildings are, you wouldn't know it. It's all concrete and barbed wire. Between the courthouse and the jailhouse, where you can hear the sound of prisoners shouting from their cells, sits the office of the district attorney.
1: Thanks.
3: Everything is very 1960s. Office cubicles, fluorescent lighting, a lot of beige. Until someone keys in a code to go through some thick security doors and into a special area of the building where the DA actually sits and suddenly, It's all oak panelling and green leather. It's a place I've spent a lot of time recently, listening to Jason Williams talk about the huge promises he made on the campaign trail, whether he can actually make them happen, and about how much of this is shaped by his own experiences of growing up as a young black man in the Deep South. Like the time he was visiting his grandma in rural Georgia and his car broke down.
5: This really nice, seemingly nice, older, white fellow showed up with his tow truck and h- hitched up the the car and, and had a little dog in his lap. And he, he, he seemed like Santa Claus, right? And he gave us a ride just a few miles to a service repair shop. And then he proceeded to tell my mom it was going to cost some ridiculous sum of money that was well over what a tow truck fee should cost. And I said, well, that's not a fair price and we sort of haggled over the price and he said well boy you either pay or you don't pay or I call the law and we had exchanged words and he grabbed a gun and my mom just like you know lost it she said we'll pay it turned into a very racist encounter in a matter of seconds and so it was very wild to see Santa Claus uh turn into like a grand dragon of Ku Klux Klan just because of Uh, I uh, spoke my mind about something being completely unfair. The ride home with my mother is where the teaching happened. You know, I mean, my mom and I typically had pretty real uh, conversations. uh, And she did not um, lean uh, towards hyperbole at all. And she was shaking. But my mother... The rest of the way home was explaining to me uh, her view of what happened there that, you know, he would have killed me and, 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 and he would have called the police and, and, and he would have still been the victim and I would have been the aggressor and the perpetrator. And no one would have ever thought twice about it in LaGrange, Georgia. And, and she said that I needed to understand that so that I could live to grow to be a man. Do you remember precisely how you felt in that moment? I knew in that moment that because of my skin, it didn't matter that I went to one of the best private schools in Atlanta. It didn't matter what, what grades I got. It didn't matter that the whole time I was talking to him, I was saying yes, sir, and no, sir. Um, it didn't matter that the, that the prices for a toe were posted on the wall um, because I was black. I felt powerless in that moment. That was a moment when I realized what, it, what it, exactly what it was like to be black in America. Um, who and what the law was designed to protect, it felt as if I was not one of those people.
3: Jason was a pretty famed defence attorney in the city and then the youngest person ever appointed as a judge in the parish of Orleans. In 2008, he decided to run for DA and he lost pretty badly. He didn't even make the runoff. He was beaten by Leon Cannizzaro, a tough-on-crime candidate who had been one of Harry Connick's protégés.
5: My platform was roughly the same platform it, it was uh, just, just uh, a couple of years ago. The world was a very different place in 2008, uh, especially in terms of how it saw uh, the criminal legal system. Do
3: you think the city basically wasn't ready for some of the ideas that
5: you were talking about? Is that a fair characterization. I think that's fair. I mean, it's probably safe to say America really wasn't ready to have a conversation like that about the criminal legal system.
3: When the DA election came around again in 2020, Jason decided to give it another go. By now, there was a movement for progressive prosecutors around the U.S. In places like Philadelphia, San Francisco and Los Angeles, people elected district attorneys who promised to use their power in a different way. Jason thought America is changing. And maybe now New Orleans was ready for change too. It's Ahmad Arbery.
0: Why is this allowed out here? Why?
2: In February, 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery was shot dead in the South Georgian neighborhood of Satilla Shores, In the two months that followed, no arrests were made. But local residents and lawmakers protested what they said was a deadly combination of racial profiling and flawed self-defence laws.
0: When they stop you, make sure you got your cameras on. Make sure you got a video.
5: Trayvon Martin. It was the case that for many summed up the dysfunction
3: of America's gun laws and depth of its racial divide. Trayvon Martin, 17, African-American, unarmed, was shot as he walked through the Florida gated community in which he was staying. The acquittal of George Zimmerman, the head of the community's neighborhood watch, who'd claimed self-defense caused uproar. It's all of
5: these things that are not new. These aren't new incidents. These are, these are different human beings who, are, who, who have found themselves victims of, of how we see crime and punishment and how we see law and order in this country, but incidents like that have been happening um, forever in this country um, and so I think that it 's not those cases; it is the the, the, the invention of an iphone it 's not just the fact that you know we saw those, those rough, roughly nine minutes of, 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 of Big Floyd's last breaths, it's also how we're able to share information uh, across communities. That's what raised, I think, uh, America's conscious and, Amer- and raised um, the consciousness of the folks in the city of New Orleans um, to be able to understand and be able to say, we need change. We need a system that is fair.
3: Despite all of that change, Jason says that when he ran, there was a backlash. My
5: campaign was really built upon the fact, and we, and we were very public about it, that the criminal legal system was racist and sexist by design. I think that really is one of the things that really upset or, or maybe even scared some people. There was, there was text messages about that, that harm would come to me. Right. There was a there's a text message with coming for you a little revolver and a little bomb emoji that people close to me received.
0: Elected to city council in 2014 and now running for New
4: Orleans District Attorney, Jason Williams is finding himself under the legal microscope. Our partners at the Times-Picayune New Orleans Advocate report Williams is under investigation by the FBI and IRS who are calling his tax returns into question. Not
3: long after Jason qualified to run, he was indicted for tax evasion. To his supporters, these are trumped up political charges an entirely predictable response to a campaign that challenged the decades-old thinking. But to his critics, they show he's a hypocrite, who preaches one thing but practises something else. Jason has categorically denied the charges and his trial date is set for July. There are basically two sides to what Jason Williams is doing as district attorney. One is looking forwards. The DA's
5: office decides who gets prosecuted and for what. There's enormous power.
3: Jason promised that from now on, he would use that enormous power in a different way from his predecessors. And he thinks that in time, all of this will lead to less crime in the city. We are going to show
5: the world, especially the South, that you can have a fair system um, and a just system, and increase public safety at the same time.
3: The other part is looking backwards. Reckoning with the sins of the past,
5: confronting the warts and molds uh, uh, of the criminal legal system. Um, you know, the injustices that were part of what was going on in the office
3: we inhabit right now. And that means looking at old cases, ones where something has gone wrong. This is what he said on the night he won.
0: But there's a lot of people in Angola right now who were scared of the system that was stacked against them in every way. Who were standing next to a public defender who was getting paid far less than the people on the other side. Who didn't have the support on the other side. This new era... Of criminal justice in the city of New Orleans is gonna look very different than it did before. It is going to be very different than it was before.
3: When you heard he won, how did you feel?
2: Oh man. It was like it was like it was like I was the president. This this is the hope that we've been looking for. And if this guy is is half the person that he's been campaigning, you know, saying he is. Then we got a chance.
0: We're finally going to make the most incarcerated city in the world the fairest, most humane, most just city in the world. New Orleans, I love you. And I am going to work hard on you every single day.
3: Tomorrow. What does reckoning with the past really mean? And could it help Quante Reader? We made contact with the alternate suspect in the case, Bird, who has never been charged in relation to the crime. I presented him with the allegations made against him during the police investigation and later sworn to in court. He said he had, quote, no involvement whatsoever in the killing and that mark was a friend of his.
1: This series is presented by Oliver Lockland. The series producer is Josh Kelly. Original music and sound design by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer is Nicole Jackson. Additional development production by Katie Fenelius and Pete Sale. We'll be back tomorrow.